0: Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com. A-A-R-O-N-V dot Making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com previously on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. In the late 1980s, an American man named Paul Benowitz became deeply alarmed. He lived in New Mexico, and he was a scientist, an inventor, a businessman, and an American patriot who deeply loved his country and the people of planet Earth. But he began finding evidence of an alien presence on Earth. He reported his discoveries to the Air Force, and they assigned agents to his case who took what he was learning very seriously and sought to help with his investigations. In time, he learned that the aliens had made a secret agreement with human officials, but the deal had gone bad. Now the aliens were implanting people with devices that could turn them into spies, control their actions, and wipe their memories. In the end, Paul concluded that our only choice was to attack the aliens without mercy. He used more than $200,000 of his own money to develop a prototype weapon to penetrate their defense screens. And he outlined an extensive attack plan known as Project Beta, which he eventually shared with President Ronald Reagan. Who was Paul Benowitz? What what did he learn and what did Project Beta involve? As a result, Paul began to take precautions to protect himself, his family, and Mrs. Hanson. On June 3rd, 1980, Leo Sprinkle rang the doorbell and after a long pause, Benowitz appeared, toting a pistol on his hip and a rifle in his right hand. He told me that the aliens could come swarming over the walls at any minute. Next episode,
1: we'll tell you the end of the Paul Benowitz story and go into analysis mode to figure out what really happened. Were they able to stop the alien invasion that he feared? Has it been covered up all this time? Why did the Air Force call in the Army's Delta Force? And what was the huge price that Paul... Paul Benowitz Personally Paid.
0: You're listening to episode 144 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about Paul Benowitz, his friend Richard Doty, and Doty's shocking UFO revelations. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, be sure to stick around to the end of the episode. We have your feedback on our recent episode on The Mark of the Beast. But first, in the 1980s, New Mexico scientist and businessman Paul Benowitz became extremely alarmed. He began to discover evidence not just of an alien presence on Earth, but that the aliens were staging a slow-motion takeover of the planet. They were abducting people and implanting them with devices that could turn them into walking cameras and microphones, control their behavior, and wipe their memories. At any moment, the implanted people could have their switch pulled and be totally controlled by the aliens. Already, this had been done to hundreds of thousands of people in the U.S., and the military had been compromised. Paul reported his findings to the Air Force, which took them seriously and encouraged him to keep investigating. In time, Paul developed a daring plan known as Project Beta to rid the Earth of aliens. He even invested $200,000 of his own money to develop a prototype weapon that could penetrate their defense screens. What happened with Project Beta? Has it been covered up all these years? What role did Delta Force play? And what was the terrible price that Paul Benowitz paid? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. Jimmy, where did we leave off at the end of our last episode?
1: Paul had recommended his attack plan, Project Beta, to President Ronald Reagan. He recognized that some humans would die as a result of the coming battle, but he saw this as our only choice. And we needed to strike now while the aliens were still weak and we could exploit their vulnerabilities, which he had documented extensively through his radio and TV communications with them.
0: So what did President
1: Reagan do? It's not clear that President Reagan received the document that Paul had sent to him. All Paul got back was a boilerplate letter explaining that the government no longer investigated UFOs since the closing of Project Blue Book in 1970. Only... That clashed with information Paul had received in the form of the Aquarius document, which indicated that the government was still investigating UFOs on a covert basis, with information being funneled up to our space agency, NASA. Why might President Reagan not have seen Paul's battle plan? One possibility is that it was typical Washington and Defense Department bureaucracy. The Aquarius document indicated that the government's covert UFO investigation was classified top secret and that the information it generated was distributed on a highly limited basis. The president gets all kinds of people writing to him every day, and it's extremely possible that the person answering the correspondence simply wasn't on the Project Aquarius distribution list and didn't have a need to know about it. As a result, he would give the standard boilerplate reply and never show Reagan the document.
0: Could the document have been deliberately kept away from Reagan by people who had been implanted by the aliens?
1: That's another possibility that may have occurred to Paul. After all, he estimated conservatively, he thought, that the aliens had implanted 300,000 people in the United States alone and if you're conducting a covert invasion, a nation's command and control is what you'd want to take over first. So Paul may well have suspected that people high up in the Defense Department and the government had already been co-opted by the aliens and were deliberately frustrating his plans.
0: Wouldn't he make himself a target if he announced himself like this with the Project Beta document? He'd already established a
1: communications link with the aliens, including a video link, by decoding their transmissions near Kirtland Air Force Base. That's a big part of how he learned so much about them, their capabilities and their weaknesses, especially their psychology. But if people who had been compromised by the aliens intercepted his Project Beta attack plan, that would tell the aliens he was a direct threat to them, and they might well take action. In fact, Paul reported that they did, and he took special precautions to protect himself his colleague, ufologist Bill Moore, reports on the state he was in by the time of their last meeting in 1986 or 1987.
0: He had guns and knives all over the house. He had installed extra locks on his doors, and he swore that they, meaning the aliens, were coming through his walls at night and injecting him with hideous chemicals which would knock him out for long periods of time. Moore was shocked at his friend's appearance. He looked like a concentration camp survivor. He'd lost a lot of weight. His hands were shaking. He smoked incessantly. Moore once counted 28 cigarettes in 45 minutes during a lunch date where Benowitz touched not a bite of his food. Benowitz told Moore that after the aliens injected him, they would make him drive his car out into the desert in the middle of the night, but he couldn't remember what he did after he got there. Both Moore and Richard Doty independently recalled noticing injection marks running down Benowitz's arm. So perhaps the aliens had come to realize that Paul Benowitz
1: was a threat to them and were taking actions to increasingly render him unstable so as to neutralize him. Paul also discovered to his horror that his wife Cindy had been implanted with one of the alien devices. Presumably, he found the telltale scar that he had seen on other implant victims
0: that revealed its location. Paul and his family seemed to be under grave threat at this point, What could he do in response? Probably one of the best things he could do to protect himself
1: would be to simply walk away, to use his communications link to tell the aliens that he was canceling his investigations and give it all up so that he was no longer a threat. That would mean letting their plot against Earth go forward, but at least he might save himself and his family. And in fact, people were counseling him to stop. His family members were telling him that he needed to stop, and his friend, Air Force Special Agent Richard Doty, recalls,
2: I actually sat down with Paul and told Paul, listen, Paul, I think you ought to stop doing this. I think you've gone as far as you can go, and this is a friend. This is Richard Doty, a friend. It wasn't Richard Doty, a special agent with OSI, talking to him. I said, this is a friend talking to you, Paul, because I became a friend with him. He was a very wonderful person, and I didn't want to see him harmed. And I said, Paul, stop it. Listen to your son, listen to your wife, end it. Get rid of the equipment, lock the stuff away, go on with your life, go back to the, your work, your, your business, and, and stop this. Paul listened to me, and I, I thought maybe he, w- he was going to take my advice, but he didn't. He continued and continued and continued. And at that point, we ended the investigation. We ended every, every involvement with Paul Benowitz. So the Air Force was concerned enough
1: that they ended their involvement with Paul. But he was determined to go on. After all, the fate of the Earth was at stake. But the strain was too much. In his book, Project Beta, Greg Bishop reports,
0: By August of 1988, after eight very long years of unrelenting stress and fear, the 61-year-old Paul Benowitz could no longer function normally. He had turned over much of the day-to-day operations of his business, Thunder Scientific Labs, to associates and his two adult sons. Former acquaintance Gary Massey says that Benowitz had finally barricaded himself in the house and had piled sandbags all around the windows. His family, finally convinced that his sanity and health were in immediate danger, took him to the Anna Caseman Mental Health Facility in Albuquerque, just a couple of miles up the road from Thunder Scientific headquarters, and checked him in for nervous exhaustion. And you can understand
1: why Paul would have nervous exhaustion after all the shocking things he'd been through. After he got out of the hospital, Paul finally did back off and cease his UFO studies, though he still believed in the aliens and all the things he discovered up until the end of his life. He passed in 2003 at the age of 75. And there are just a few remaining questions we need to look at. Like how much of all this was the Air Force and
0: his friend Richard Doty lying to Paul about? We'll have more on that shocking revelation after we take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Teresa S, Jess K, Megan F, Patrick W, and Paul B. Their generous donations at sqpn.com/give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's mysterious world and all the shows at StarQuest. And now's a great time to become a StarQuest patron, thanks to a generous gift from a StarQuest supporter. When you start a new Patreon monthly pledge at sqpn.com give, the first three months will be matched by an equal amount from our donor. So if you become a new patron at $10 a month, after three months, our donor will give $30 to StarQuest to support all our shows, including this one, making your gift go even further. So if you've been thinking of becoming a StarQuest patron, now's the time visit sqpn.com slash give today. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com. a a r o n dot com. Making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. So, Jimmy, let's talk about the theories concerning this whole subject. What theories are there about Paul Benowitz and Project Beta?
1: I've already mentioned the big one. How much was Paul being lied to? And to the extent he was being lied to, how did the disinformation campaign unfold? Also, why did they lie to him? What was the Air Force trying to do? And since every good disinformation campaign has elements of truth in it, how much of what he was told about the UFOs happened to be true? And then finally, we'll need to review our findings from the faith perspective.
0: All right, what can we say about what happened to Bob Benowitz from the reason perspective? Let's start by talking about his friend, Special Agent Richard Doty. What do we know about him? He was
1: born in 1950, and he has a pedigree connected with UFOs, as his uncle, Major Edward Doty, headed Project Twinkle, which investigated the green fireballs over New Mexico in 1948 that people thought were connected with UFOs. As we indicated, Special Agent Doty was an Air Force officer assigned to the Office of Special Investigations. They provide criminal investigative services protective services, and counterintelligence services. And it's the latter capacity that Doty was involved with Paul in here. In his dealings with Paul Benowitz, Agent Doty was functioning as a counterintelligence officer. That is, an officer whose job is to thwart intelligence efforts directed against the United States.
0: How does Doty describe the beginning of his relationship with Paul? At the point they met, Paul had been getting
1: film footage of strange lights over Kirtland Air Force Base, as well as picking up unusual radio transmissions from the base. Paul contacted base security, wanting to alert them to a potential security threat. And Agent Doty initially thought it might be coming from the Soviets. You know, after all, this was during the Cold War. And that shaped their initial meeting. In the documentary we've mentioned, which is called Mirage Men, Doty says this.
2: Paul didn't know initially what he, what he got. He didn't, he didn't analyze it. When he had gotten the first uh, series of, of transmissions, um, he recorded them, and then he contacted the security officer for Kirtland. I began a dialogue with Paul, trying to find out everything he had. And as I did, then I learned that a lot of the information he had wasn't anything to do with a Soviet threat or some kind of hostile threat against Kirtland. It was information that he had gathered because of the fact that he was a scientist and because he had sensitive and sophisticated equipment, he was collecting emissions coming from the base.
1: The problem was what Paul had discovered as he filmed the unusual phenomena over the base and the Manzano Mountains
2: inside it. He had two films of an object flying One picture depicted an object that looked like it was flying out of the mountain. And it looked like some kind of saucer-shaped object. He immediately then thought that there were UFOs coming out of Manzano. The second film was of an object that was something experimental that the government was doing. When he filmed that, then again, the flag went up that he just filmed a classified project.
1: So Paul had a film of something that looked like a UFO and another project that was classified. And now the Air Force had a decision to make.
2: And we had to decide on what we were going to do then. Were we going to allow this to happen or we were trying to convince them otherwise?
1: They let Paul come to the base and have a meeting with many important people as we mentioned in the last episode.
2: Paul made a presentation to the Air Force officials on what he had been doing and about what he had been collecting. He showed some of his film He showed some of his pictures. He had an audio recorder that was playing the sounds that he'd collected from the base. The highest ranking person in the room, which was a Brigadier General said, you have some very convincing information, Paul. And that kind of set everything in motion with Paul to let him think that, yep, he does. We briefed everybody in the room. So they knew what we were doing, basically. And so after the meeting, there was a number of questions asked to him What do you want the Air Force to do? And Paul says, I'd like a a grant to investigate UFOs on the base and a grant to continue this contact that he claimed he had with some of these aliens.
1: And as we discussed last episode, he received a $75,000 grant to continue his studies from one of the agencies involved. But the overall decision was, the Air Force would lie to Paul Benowitz in order to convince him that everything he was detecting was due to aliens.
2: The more he had contact with me and others uh, within the intelligence community, the more he started analyzing the information. So we kind of planted the seed in Paul that what he was seeing and what he was hearing and what he was collecting was, in fact, probably maybe UFOs.
1: And they exploited the fact that Paul was a patriotic American against him.
2: It was very easy to convince Paul. Paul was a World War II veteran. He's very patriotic. He always flew, flew his flag. Those type of people you can convince that. Listen, just telling Paul, you can't tell anybody else about this because this, you know it could get in the wrong hands. And so immediately Paul became uh, a cooperating source, and he held everything that he had gotten. in in secrecy.
1: So they didn't have to do very much, at least in the
2: beginning. It wasn't a whole lot that we did. There was just a simple, really, really simple uh, nod and statement to Paul that what he was seeing was probably UFOs.
1: But Paul was off and running, and over time, the lies became more elaborate.
0: How did that happen?
1: The liars apparently started to involve more than just the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. Richard Doty reports...
2: At one point, another agency uh, was conducting an investigation, and they set up a surveillance across the street from him. And Paul's son contacted me and said, leave my father alone. You guys are across the street, and you're bothering my father. He's getting to the point that he's being paranoid. Well, I knew it wasn't us.
1: In fact, it was the National Security Agency, or NSA, that had set up an outpost in the house across the street from Paul. Greg Bishop
3: reports. He said he saw people coming in and out of the house and looking out from the curtains and things like that. And uh, as it turns out, the NSA had some people in this house. They were watching him and actually beaming messages straight across the street into his antenna setup. He would started picking up these signals, and the NSA was scared that anybody could figure that out. They decided to just take complete control of what he was seeing, and give him exactly what he thought he should be getting. They replaced his computer with their own computer. The computer had software that would decode the messages he was getting in the way they wanted him to see them. And if you look at the transcript of it, it seems like almost gibberish, but because people want to pull out content from a random order, it starts to make some kind of sense they said that they were from a planet with no water and they were trying to find a new place to live and they wanted to take over the earth and they could only trust Paul. They were going to have some kind of agreement with him, but he said, you can't trust anything they say. These aliens are evil and served to make him look silly, which is exactly what they're trying to do.
1: So after Paul started picking up transmissions from Kirtland AFB that were connected with a classified project, the NSA moved in. This is the organization that, as we have since learned, conducts massive global surveillance, including of telephone calls. The NSA took control of the equipment that Paul had set up in his house. They started beaming radio and television signals directly into what he'd set up. They replaced his computer with one of their own, and they are responsible for the alleged translations of alien signals he got, as well as the visual images of aliens he saw on his monitors. And Paul and his family noticed the strange people who were set up in the neighboring house, yet Paul never walked across the short distance to confront them and ask them what they were doing. Maybe he thought they were people who had been co-opted by the aliens
0: and were being controlled by them. One of the people we mentioned last episode was Paul's friend and fellow UFO researcher, Bill Moore. How does he fit into all this? He had been
1: co-opted by the intelligence community. Sometime previously, he had been contacted by a man from the Defense Intelligence Agency, or DIA, whose identity he's never revealed. Instead, he referred to this man by the nickname Falcon. Falcon said that he represented a group of people inside the system who wanted to reveal what the government really knows about aliens and UFOs, and they wanted to reveal it to the public slowly through a trustworthy, reputable ufologist like Bill. And that's reasonable. You don't want the public to freak out all at once. You want to introduce them to this stuff slowly. But there was a catch.
0: There's always a catch with this kind of deal. So what was the catch here? Basically, Falcon
1: and his associates wanted information about what was going on in the UFO community, what it was aware of, the ideas that were circulating in it, that kind of thing. If Bill would keep tabs on what the UFO people were thinking, Falcon would give him information about what the government really knows. As an earnest of his good faith, he gave Bill a document about a UFO landing in New Mexico in 1969. The document referred to a government project by the name of Silver Sky, and Bill checked it out. He went around New Mexico looking for the witnesses to the UFO landing, and he didn't find any. The next time he met Falcon, he confronted him with the fact that the document was a fake and none of the people that mentioned in it existed. Falcon said, congratulations, you passed the test. They'd given him the document to see if he was really a competent investigator who could be trusted with sensitive information. If he hadn't been the type of researcher they were looking for, he would have gone straight to the public without checking it out to see if Project Silver Sky even existed. But he didn't. He showed them that he was the kind of quality person they were looking for, and now they were ready to start giving him the real stuff. So they started doing business.
0: And how did he become involved with Paul Benowitz?
1: Falcon introduced Bill to our other friend, Richard Doty, and in February 1981, Falcon and Doty asked him to give Paul a copy of the Aquarius document that we mentioned last episode. Just as a refresher, the Aquarius document said that despite the closure of Project Blue Book, the government was still secretly investigating UFOs, that NASA was receiving the information it was developing, and that something known as Project Aquarius was involved. So was a group nobody had heard of named MJ-12. And most relevant to our story today, NASA was following the information that Paul Benowitz was developing. But there was a problem. Bill Moore had seen an earlier version of the Aquarius document, and the one they gave him now was different. It had been edited. Greg Bishop reports,
0: The document in its pristine condition was only seen by Bill Moore in the offices of AFOSI, and once again in February of 1981, when he was handed a heavily edited and rewritten version of the message, and told that he was to give this copy to Bob Benowitz, when he asked why the new version was riddled with changes, Falcon replied that it had to be sanitized to protect sensitive projects. It was the first time that he had been asked to lie to a fellow researcher. This sort of commitment to the deception bothered Moore, and he sat on the document for a few months until he was gently warned that all operations were off unless he followed through. Moore explained, My understanding, although I never knew for sure, was that Benowitz was expected to wave it to the press and others as proof of what he was saying about an alien invasion, at which point the document would be denounced as counterfeit and Benowitz would be further discredited. So Bill suspected
1: that the edited document was meant as a setup for Paul to discredit him. And... He didn't want that to happen because he'd gotten to know Paul and they'd become friends. But if Bill didn't deliver it to him, he wouldn't be learning anything more from Falcon about what the government really knows about UFOs. So he sat on it for a few months. But then he got an almost solomonic split the middle idea. He would deliver the document to Paul, satisfying Falcon, but he would tell Paul not to use it, thus protecting him and thwarting Falcon's plans. And as we discussed last episode, in the summer of 1981, he made an appointment with Paul at his business, Thunder Scientific Labs, took him into a closet, turned up a radio so no buddy and no listening devices could hear them, and whispered to Paul that he should just use the document for his own research, but otherwise just sit on it. So even though Bill knew he was giving Paul an edited and thus at least partially falsified document, he was still trying to be his friend. And as we'll see later, Bill eventually did a major voluntary act of public penance for his deeds and paid a heavy
0: price. What about Paul's discovery of the alien base at Archuleta Mesa?
1: How'd that happen? As we indicated, Paul suspected that there was an alien base in that area because of his interactions with abductee Meyer Hansen and Officer Gabe Valdez. But, of course, the Air Force helped foster this impression, as it helped take his attention off of some of the things that were happening with the secret projects over Kirtland AFB. Though, there may have been secret projects elsewhere. In an interview for the documentary Mirage Men, Richard Doty states...
2: Paul is a pilot. And he had a plane and he flew, he flew around those areas and he saw things and he filmed things up there that again presented a problem for us because what he was filming up there was actually a, 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 a secretive military installation that was training uh, 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 commandos. So then we had to convince Paul that what he was seeing up there wasn't again, a UFO.
1: There's actually some confusion about this. While there apparently was a secret military base in the Archuleta Mesa area, there's a question about whether it was actively training commandos at that time. In his book, Project Beta, Greg Bishop reports,
0: Curtland AFOSI also rang up Fort Carson Army Base in southern Colorado and inquired if they still conducted training missions in the Dulce area. No, they said, but they wouldn't mind cranking it up again. The army was given further encouragement by an Air Force offer to cover at least some of the costs of these extra training exercises by filling out expense vouchers. Faced with this unexpected gravy train, the army infantry and the elite Delta Force detachment that used the area needed little encouragement. To sweeten the pot, AFOSI also told them that the Rus was part of an encounter espionage project against the Russians which in a sense it was, as we shall see. We'll
1: cover the Russian espionage angle later in this episode, but for now, notice that we have a contradiction between whether the commando base near Archuleta Mesa was or was not currently being used for training activities. Whichever was the case, the Air Force decided to seed the area with props to convince Paul that there was in fact an alien base there. Doty talked about this in an interview back in 2005, and many listeners of Mysterious World will recognize the voice of the interviewer.
4: From the high desert in the great American Southwest, I could you all good evening, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you may be in the world's time zones, all of them covered like a great warm blanket by this program, Coast to Coast AM. I'm Mark Bell. My pleasure and
5: what we did was we went ahead and uh, fortified his thought by putting a fence up there around some c- certain things, uh, bringing in some helicopters.
4: Well, what'd you do? Paint them jet black or something?
5: We we had a couple black helicopters, uh, uh, uh. and we had a couple. We had some things. Uh, planted onto the ground around Archuleta Peak.
1: The things that they planted apparently included a dome that Paul saw, as well as air vents from the supposed underground base. And the commandos that were being trained there included the Army's Delta Force Special Forces Detachment, which I promised last episode would play a role in this mystery. Greg Bishop reports
0: At one point in the proceedings, Officer Gabe Valdez was helping to coordinate a local Albuquerque news crew reconnaissance of the area for a documentary that had hired Benowitz as a consultant. Serendipitously enough for the AFOSI, the Delta Force was conducting one of their free-for-alls up on the Archuleta Mesa that day. As the news helicopter was hovering about over the pines, Benowitz pointing out areas of interest, three huge Black Hawk helicopters screamed over a ridge and buzzed the terrified passengers. Thinking that they were under some sort of attack or harassment, they quickly retreated, and landed back at the local airport with the army in hot pursuit. The Delta Force sat down a few hundred feet away and disgorged a few of their black-clad personnel while army tank trucks rolled out to refuel them. Still shaken and dubious about approaching the menacing group, Benowitz and the newspeople asked Valdez if he knew what was going on. Unnerved but undaunted, Valdez approached the open door of the nearest helicopter. One of the officers shouted that Valdez was out of his jurisdiction, but the single-minded Valdez jumped aboard to take a close-up look at the identifying patches on one of the uniforms before he was threatened with more than a verbal warning and backed off. Recalling the incident, Valdez said, This was my jurisdiction, damn it, and I wanted to see who was invading my town and scaring people. The AFOSI also asked the army to fly low over farmhouses and pastures to drive home the point. Special forces were in the area and something was going on up on Archuleta hotshot pilots were only too happy to comply. I like the way that Bishop puts it. Valdez was threatened with more than a verbal warning.
1: Nicely understated. I assume that means they pointed a gun at him.
0: Paul also saw a crashed vehicle of some kind that he took to be a nuclear-powered UFO that humans were using, but that alien shot down. What was that? It's unclear. And there have been various speculations
1: about it. Some have suggested that it would have been an early stealth plane. And, you know, stealth technology was still classified at this time. Others have suggested it might have been an early drone.
0: That raises the question of what technologies the Air Force and the other agencies were trying to protect by lying to Paul. What's the current thinking on that?
1: There are a number of different theories. Obviously, whatever it was that crashed on Archuleta was whether a stealth plane or a drone was one of them. But there were also other technologies. One of them was the NSA communication system that Paul had hacked into, and that they then turned against him to feed him messages from the aliens. In his book Project Beta, Greg Bishop makes the case that one was another technology, alternately known as Project Rainbow or as Tabor Orange, which involved tracking. And controlling Soviet spy satellites. These were things we had learned how to do based on the efforts of people spying for us in Russia.
0: Simple identification was not the end product of all this dangerous effort. The assets stationed in Russia had done their job so well that the Americans not only knew which pieces of technology were passing silently overhead, they also knew how to defeat some of the satellite's security coded systems read the information stored in their memory, and even reprogram their guidance systems to steer them out of orbit. The secret lay in laser communication. The Russians had devised a way of talking to their spacecraft using laser pulses instead of more easily intercepted radio waves. Once the boys at Kirtland had identified and tracked the orbits of their targets, the information was immediately relayed to the stallion laser facility located 200 miles south at White Sands Missile Range. There, laser experts and intelligence officers used the stolen codes to tap into the satellites and download any useful information, such as any sensitive areas that had been photographed, and then sent a command to steer the spacecraft into a useless orbit or attitude. By the time it appeared over the Russian horizon, Soviet technicians were completely bamboozled as to why their equipment was constantly screwing up. They would correct the problem as the satellite passed over them, only to have the thing come back around the next time with a whole new set of malfunctions. The satellite espionage program, which may have been known either as Project Rainbow or Tabor Orange, depending on who was talking, was an unqualified success. But Paul Benowitz represented the weak link in security. After the AFOSI found out he was taking pictures of the laser, they again broke into his home, located the pictures, and replace them with blank frames. So this may have been one of the technologies that Paul stumbled across,
1: and there may have been others as well. Who was giving Doty his orders? One theory that's been proposed in the ufological community is that nobody was giving him his orders, that he was a rogue agent who decided to do this on his own. Doty, of course, denies
4: this. How did you become involved with this Benowitz case?
5: I was the counterintelligence officer for the base. All right. The information got to my desk, and uh, I briefed my commander, and we sent a a little message up to headquarters, and we were tasked with uh, obtaining all the information we could from Paul.
1: That, of course, was only authorization to start finding out about Paul, not to lie to him. But Doty says that everything else that happened later on was also authorized.
5: I followed orders. Everything we did... Was following orders.
1: And I think that's right. Richard Doty's rank at the time he left the Air Force in 1988 was Master Sergeant. A master sergeant is a senior non-commissioned officer, so he wasn't even a commissioned officer. There's no way that someone with that rank would be able to personally authorize everything the Air Force did, like creating and installing props up on the Archuleta Mesa to make it look like an alien base was there, or underwriting funding to partially pay Delta Force to come in and train there, and things like that. Also, we know who Doty's immediate superior was, and he's named in the books on these topics, and Doty has said he got his orders from him. And we know that Doty's superior also had interactions with Binowitz as part of the deception. On at least one occasion, he flew over Archuleta with Paul. As far as I know, he hasn't spoken publicly about the Binowitz affair, but the evidence strongly supports Doty's superior as being
0: involved. The real question would be how high up the chain of command the project went. Do we have a sense of that?
1: I'm sure it didn't go all the way up to Commander-in-Chief President Ronald Reagan. A president wouldn't be briefed on or approve decisions to run a disinformation campaign against a lone UFO guy like Paul Benowitz. So the answer seems to be that the person giving the orders was somewhere in the middle. Doty refers to having been in communication with headquarters about the affair, but That could mean different things. Also, since multiple agencies were involved, it may have involved key officers in several agencies. And here, Greg Bishop offers an interesting theory. Referring to ufologist Bill Moore, he says,
6: So he came back to his contact, which a lot of people know as uh, Falcon. That's what uh, Bill Moore and his partner began to refer to this guy. He was from, apparently, from the Defense Intelligence Agency. Uh Uh-huh. He actually was the head of, as far as I know, the head of the uh, operation against Benowitz. The the orders came down from him.
3: So
1: Falcon in the Defense Intelligence Agency may have been in charge of the overall disinformation
0: effort. What was the motive for deceiving him? Why not just tell him the truth that he'd stumbled upon some advanced technology work and should back off? Initially, Paul did
1: think... That he might have stumbled onto something classified, and he wasn't sure it was UFOs. But Doty explains the decision this way:
5: re- Initially, he thought maybe it was classified. And he told us, "Listen, if I was, if I tapped into something, you know, let me know." Well, we weren't going to do that because we don't know who his friends were, and we couldn't really—he wasn't a trusted person.
1: By "we didn't know who his friends were," Doty is referring to the possibility that Paul may have been in contact with people who were, even if he didn't know it actually Soviet agents. Documentary maker and author Mark Pilkington explains,
6: The UFOlogists were constantly seeking evidence for the extraterrestrial conspiracy and the UFO cover-up. They were digging through documents, they were hanging around secret air bases, and quite likely stumbling upon genuine military secrets. And a more serious possibility was that Soviet intelligence agents may have been infiltrating the UFO field in order to extract this kind of information about new technologies. I think it's no coincidence that the timing of the operation against Paul Benowitz dovetails with the development of the stealth programme. And at the time, this was the absolute pinnacle of global aviation technology. And that's exactly the sort of thing that Soviet agents would be looking for.
1: And not only could Soviet agents learn about our classified technology programs from ufologists like Paul, if they did learn about them, it could endanger our people in Russia, like the ones who helped us crack the Soviet satellite system. Greg Bishop explains.
6: There were assets in Russia who were sending this information back, and if they found out that somebody over here was getting that information and using it on these satellites... Through Paul Benowitz or anybody else, these people would have been, you know, imprisoned or 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 killed or whatever. And they figured. I, I think uh, Richard can comment on this. That they figured that the uh, one person getting paranoid and going going off the deep end was worth, you know, 10 or 12 or 15 or however many agents they had over in Russia doing this, apart from the fact of just the basic information.
1: Also, according to Richard Doty, they didn't foresee Paul becoming mentally unstable due to all this. Do you feel any guilt for this?
5: Um, Later on, yes, absolutely. Um, It was meant to be a short term operation to disinform him and then kind of walk away from it.
1: So according to Doty, they didn't want to just tell Paul the truth because they were afraid that the information could get back to the Soviets. As Pilkington and Bishop explain, that would endanger both our defense posture and our human assets on the ground. They thus decided to deceive Paul and discredit him so people wouldn't believe what he was saying. It would just sound like crazy UFO theories. But they didn't mean to drive him off the deep end. They thought that they'd make him look like a nut and he could go to UFO conventions and say all the nutty things he wanted, none the worse for wear. Instead, he became mentally unbalanced. So this was really meant to be a minor operation that got out of control and had unintended consequences. At least, that's what Agent Doty would like us to believe.
0: Do I detect a note of skepticism? Yes, because, as we heard Richard
2: Doty himself say earlier... It was very easy to convince Paul. Paul was a World War II veteran. He's very patriotic. He always flew, flew his flag. Those type of people you can convince that, listen, just telling Paul, you can't tell anybody else about this because this, you know it could get in the wrong hands. And so immediately, Paul became uh, a cooperating source, and he held everything that he had gotten... In in secrecy.
1: So, Paul was exactly the kind of person they could trust to keep things secret. He even offered to back off if, as he initially suspected, he had stumbled across a classified program that had nothing to do with aliens. That suggests that the Air Force may have had a different motive. The explanation Doty would have us believe could be an example of what is referred to in the intelligence world as a limited hangout. Former Deputy Director of the CIA, Victor Marchetti, explains,
0: Limited hangout is spy jargon for a favorite and frequently used gimmick of the clandestine professionals. When their veil of secrecy is shredded and they can no longer rely on a phony cover story to misinform the public, they resort to admitting, sometimes even volunteering, some of the truth while still managing to withhold the key and damaging facts in the case. The public, however, is usually so intrigued by the new information that it never thinks to pursue the matter further.
1: Applying that to this case, when the public became aware that the Air Force and other agencies had been running a disinformation campaign against Paul Benowitz, they may have chosen to do a limited hangout. They'd admit that there was a disinformation campaign, since they couldn't deny that any longer, but they'd make it sound as innocent as possible and conceal its real motive.
0: How did the public become aware of the disinformation campaign?
1: You'll remember that we earlier mentioned that Paul's friend, the ufologist Bill Moore, voluntarily did a major act of public penance and paid a high price for doing so. What he did was blow the whistle on the entire operation. At the 1989 Mutual UFO Network, or MUFON, convention in Las Vegas, he gave a speech in which he revealed the whole thing. In this speech, He revealed how the Air Force, including Richard Doty, had misled and manipulated Paul Benowitz. He also revealed how the UFO community itself had been misled and manipulated with the claims that Paul and others had been making. These included major elements of 1980s UFO lore, including not only Roswell, but also the idea that we had a secret treaty with the aliens, that there were underground bases, conflicts between the military and the aliens, and the alien plan to take over the world. Here's part of that 1989 speech.
7: What we are hearing today about malevolent aliens, underground bases, secret treaties with the U.S. government, has its roots firmly planted in the Benowitz Affair. The entire story of a secret treaty between the U.S. government and the aliens, of exchanges of technology between us and the aliens, of battles between aliens and American armed forces, and of aliens allegedly having implanted hundreds of thousands, if not millions of human beings for the the purpose of taking over the world and using us as cattle or slaves, came about as a result of the disinformation process. I know, because I was in a position to observe much of this process as it unfolded. And I was providing regular regular reports on its effectiveness to some of the very people who were doing it to Paul.
0: How did the MUFON convention crowd take it when Bill revealed all these things? Not well. He was trashing
1: major elements of the UFO lore that they were heavily invested in. They started booing and heckling. In fact, in this clip, you can hear them start to boo, after which MUFON official Hal Starr has to step up to the mic to calm them down.
7: It became apparent to me that my supplying information to the government, through Doty, on the activities of Paul Benowitz, Apro and to a lesser extent several other individuals, was to be a part of this equation. I also discovered that whatever it was that Benowitz was involved with, he was the subject of considerable interest on the part of not one, but several government agencies, and that they were actively trying to defuse him by pumping as much disinformation through him as he could possibly absorb. Being a very small part of that process gave me, I thought, something of an advantage. It became my intention to play that advantage for all the information I could get out of it. Then it was for his part. Frankly, I'm a little ashamed of some people in this audience, regardless of what you believe, what you hear, or not.
1: Greg Bishop,
0: who attended Bill's speech at the 1989 MUFON convention,
1: reports,
0: Moore's speech ran nearly two hours. It had to be stopped several times by MUFON's Arizona State Director Hal Starr to restore order. Another researcher stood up and rhetorically asked, Where'd you get all that crap from, Bill? The publisher of a major UFO magazine ran out in tears. People literally yelled, cried, and gritted their teeth in anger. I was surprised that they didn't throw things the reaction to Moore's admission was predictable. Bill English, who ran out with fists clenched saying, I'm going to get a fire hose, was one of Moore's fellow APRO members and probably felt doubly betrayed even though Moore had never disinformed him or anyone else he worked with at APRO. English stormed out in red-faced rage. Like English, many of Moore's colleagues could not handle the cognitive dissonance that he had laid on them. When
1: he got up to give his speech, Bill knew that this would likely end his career in ufology, and it basically did. After this, he essentially retired from the field. However, he had succeeded in his goal of alerting the UFO community to how the Air Force and others within the intelligence community were deceiving and manipulating the UFO world. And it wasn't just Paul and Bill that were involved. Bill revealed that other Prominent ufologists had also struck deals similar to the one he had. He hasn't revealed the names of these other ufologists, but what he said suggests a broader disinformation campaign than just the one aimed at Paul Benowitz. Who would the broader campaign's targets have been? The UFO community itself in the book version of Mirage Men, Mark Pilkington writes that the explanations that have been proposed do not explain.
0: The Air Force has sustained a psychological assault on Paul's brilliant but fragile mind, nor do they explain why the Air Force or whichever organization was responsible, would test its new toys, especially its most treasured alien toys, with an eye and camera shot of a housing development when it had several square miles of secluded open desert in which to do so. Most damning to the secret technology argument is that if Benewitz had seen something that he shouldn't have done the Air Force could simply have asked him to keep quiet about it. As a patriot and a military contractor, he would almost certainly have done so. Should he have refused, the military could have resorted to legal pressures. As Brad Sparks and Barry Greenwood point out, intercepting secret government or military communications would have been in breach of the Communications Act of 1934 and the Espionage Act of 1917. If Benowitz had been intercepting sensitive NSA transmissions, for example, they could have arrested him, impounded his equipment, and shut down his business. But they didn't. Instead, they encouraged him in his delusions. Why? The version of events proposed by Greenwood and Sparks casts AFOSI and the entire Benowitz operation in a more sinister, premeditated light. Kirtland AFOSI probably first identified Benowitz. At Harrison Schmidt's Cattle Mutilation Conference, held on their doorstep in Albuquerque in April 1979. A month later, Rick Doty transferred to Kirtland from Ellsworth, where UFO themed disinformation had been successfully deployed against the National Enquirer the previous year. Four months later, in July 1979, Benowitz began filming lights over the Manzano Range at Kirtland, conveniently within eyeshot of his own home and recording the radio transmissions that he believed were connected to the UFOs. On 27 January 1980, Benewitz received his first communication from the aliens themselves. In a 1981 letter to the Assistant Chief of Staff for Intelligence at the Air Force, he makes the striking point that none other than Major Ernest Edwards, the commander of Kirtland's security force, and the first person that Benewitz reported his UFO sightings to Had been present at the first electronic communications session and had unofficially provided valuable logistic judgment to Project Beta. The Air Force had been actively involved with Benowitz, encouraging him in his delusions from the very beginning. In July 1980, AFOSI sent Craig Weitzel's letter about UFOs at Kirtland to APRO, who asked Bill Moore to investigate. And finally, that September, Moore was contacted by Falcon and Richard Doty, and the Benowitz operation went into second gear. Considered in this light, the affair takes on a whole new dimension. Benowitz didn't accidentally stumble onto the UFOs flying over Kirtland. There were a brightly lit lure flown entirely for his benefit. The Weitzel letter, meanwhile, was expressly intended to draw in a UFO researcher. Both Moore and Benowitz were baited and trapped. AFOSI planned to use these men as conduits for their UFO disinformation from the very beginning. Their real target was not Benowitz at all, but the entire UFO community. So the idea proposed here
1: is that the Air Force entrapped Paul and Bill into a pre-planned disinformation operation targeting the UFO community as a whole. Why would they want to do
0: that? Mark Pilkington writes, Imagine that you are the Air Force. Your goal is nothing less than total air supremacy, and to maintain this, you need to keep secrets. Lots of them. Operational secrets, tactical secrets, and technological secrets in the shape of aircraft, satellites, and weapons. Maintaining these secrets, particularly regarding your technology, is absolutely critical. Meanwhile, the ufologists are trying to get a peek at your black projects bombarding you with Freedom of Information Act requests and accusing you of conspiring with DNA-stealing aliens to cover up the truth about UFOs, which you know don't exist. The ufologist's aim is to reveal all the secrets that you're spending many millions of dollars to protect. You are, quite reasonably, going to consider these people a threat, and you're going to want to neutralize them. By controlling Paul Benowitz, a noisy proponent of UFO conspiracies who lived right on your doorstep, And Bill Moore, one of the most well respected members of the UFO community, you have the perfect base from which to launch an assault on this troublesome segment of the population. Benowitz's Project Beta served to focus and divide the UFO community, creating a wall of noise around the subject that made serious research difficult. Many people who might want to take the subject seriously were dissuaded from doing so. It was a masterclass in information warfare, but it came at a terrible price. So according to this theory, Paul Benowitz was a victim of a broader
1: plan to deceive the UFO community, to inject so much disinformation into UFO lore that it would make serious research much harder, and thus throw up a smokescreen that would better protect the US's secrets and strengthen our position in the Cold War.
0: Let's look at this from the other perspective. A lot of people in the UFO community argue that in a good disinformation campaign, some of the material has to be true in order to make it believable. So how much of what the Air Force told Paul might be true in this case?
1: Some of it. I, I've, I've heard it said that in such campaigns, you always want to put a lie between two truths, but I'm not sure that's the right ratio. Doty himself has said that about 80% of the info in the UFO community is false and only 20% is true. It could easily be that all of the stuff They told Paul related to the aliens was fake, leaving only truths like, yes, we do have secret aircraft, and one of them did crash at Archuleta. It just wasn't a secret military craft built on alien technology.
0: Some of the UFO community have argued that in a disinformation campaign like this, you want to give away some of the biggest truths so that they can be discredited and people won't believe them. What do you make of that? I'm not persuaded. Let's consider a parallel. If the government knows
1: aliens are real because they've recovered crashed saucers or have a secret treaty with them, then this is something as important as the Manhattan Project's development of the nuclear bomb back in the 1940s. We really did not want the German or the Japanese governments learning that we were making progress toward having nukes, as it would have caused them to frantically start funneling resources into their own nuclear programs, which we'll be discussing in future episodes. So what did we do? We didn't start spreading rumors that we were getting close to having the bomb, but then surround these rumors with crazy stories in order to bring discredit on the idea that we were running a nuclear program. Instead, we tried to keep an iron lid on the fact we were aggressively pursuing developing the bomb. And we used extensive security measures, which were not entirely successful, to keep the Manhattan Project entirely secret. Given that history, I think we'd likely do the same thing if we had proof aliens were visiting Earth. Leaking it and surrounding it with crazy stories could easily backfire.
0: What about the claims some have made that we want to get this information out so that the Russians would know we've been reverse engineering UFO tech so that they won't mess with us?
1: I think it's possible that we might have wanted to deceive the Russians and make them believe we had UFO tech so that they wouldn't mess with us. In that case, we might let rumors leak out to make us seem stronger than we really are. Some have suggested that this is what's happening now with the Navy's current UFO patents for Dr. Salvatore Pais that we've discussed in previous episodes, that they're meant as a disinformation campaign against the Chinese to make them think we have tech that we really don't. But if we actually had alien-based technology, I don't think we'd leak rumors to the public about it. We would either secretly tell the Russians or the Chinese, not the UFO community, that we had tech that was way out of their league, or we would have announced it publicly like we did with the stealth fighter and the stealth bomber. Or we would have kept it completely secret, like we did with the Manhattan Project and the nuclear bomb. Because if you actually have a piece of advanced technology, you don't need to scare your opponent into thinking you're stronger than you are. You really are strong.
0: Weren't there actually some very strange events that were part of the Paul Benowitz story that the Air Force didn't know how to explain? There were. As we covered last episode, the Kirtland papers
1: indicate that one of their guards encountered an unexplained glowing disc shaped object at Kirtland Air Force Base and other similar things. There also was a mysterious jamming of military and civilian radar in the area that came from a source within Kirtland. When abductee Myra Hansen was hypnotized, she was able to describe the interior of one of the facilities at Banzano Base. In great detail despite the fact she was a civilian who shouldn't have access to it. And both Bill Moore and Richard Doty reported seeing a strange glowing orb in Paul's house. These things could indicate that there was something more to the story than disinformation, but I'm not convinced. Why not? How would you explain them? The Air Force papers discussing the glowing disc-shaped object could themselves be disinformation, or the object could have been a secret project of some kind that the people preparing the papers weren't cleared to know about. The radar jamming could have been another secret project which the people preparing the reports also weren't cleared to know about. Myrna Hansen could have been an undercover asset used to entrap Paul, and she may have been given information about the Manzano facility. Or Paul was told her information was accurate, even though it might have been totally off. Or maybe she remote viewed the facility under hypnosis. Who knows? And the glowing orb in Paul's home could have been a projection of some kind, perhaps a trick by the NSA, since we already know they were projecting other things into his house, like the transmissions. While some reports suggest that the orb looked solid, like the one we heard, the fact it simply vanished and that Bill Moore looked around to see if he could find a projector suggests it might have just been a projected light. So, I don't think that these facts provide proof that any elements of the story have paranormal explanations.
0: What does Richard Doty have to say about how much of the story was real? He claims that although
1: many of the specifics that he told Paul were false, the core of the story, the idea that we have been visited by aliens and the government knows it, is true. He said that in 1979, just before the Benowitz affair began,
2: he was briefed onto a classified program. I was selected to participate in a, a special access program within the counterintelligence community. My, my supervisor just selected me and said, you're going to be briefed into a program and you're going to be responsible for investigating everything associated with this program. The first part of the briefing dealt with how the United States Air Force were countering unauthorized disclosure of technology to the public by using the UFO phenomena as a cover. And then the second part of the, the briefing was where we were actually shown and, and briefed uh, about the, the United States government's and, um, um, involvement with uh, extraterrestrials since, since the ni- late 1940s. Well, they showed us a lot of things. They showed us a film, which was a late 40s or early 50s film of a recovery operation, which they talked about as being in Roswell. They showed crash debris, they showed extraterrestrial bodies, and then there was also a briefing showing a a live alien sitting in a room talking to people. And then the narrator of this film talked about the continuation of a connection between the United States government and extraterrestrial uh, civilizations. After viewing this, I was not sure if it was real, if it was they presented it to us for some reason, maybe some kind of psychological conditioning. Um, I don't think I initially believed any of it. But uh, after the, the film was over with, an Air Force Colonel in uniform then started talking about the, the operation, the program, and what how, we, how the United States government, and it was always United States government, it wasn't Air Force or Army, it was the United States government, how they progressed from the early days, meaning the crash retrieval operations in the late 40s, until now, which was the late 70s. And then uh, the more he spoke, the more I realized that what I saw was real. I mean, that that this guy wouldn't be sitting here, standing here talking to us uh, with the people in the room, uh, briefing into this high-level program if if it was was hoax. Roswell happened. Two crashes, one in Roswell and one in West. They didn't find the craft for a couple of years. It was all one crash, but it took them a couple of years to find the second crash site.
1: So today, Doty says that Roswell really was an alien crash and that the government had subsequent contact with the aliens. How credible do you find him? How do
0: we know he's telling the truth at this point? Art Bell asked him that exact
4: question You were a disinformation specialist. How in God's name am I supposed to understand? I'm hearing the truth from you now.
5: Well, I don't. I, I would have no reason whatsoever if I was. If I wanted to disinform you, Art, what I would do was try to convince you that that the the, the, the uh, extraterrestrial visit, visitation was baloney. That everything that you ever heard was was wrong. I can't do that because it's not true. I wouldn't do it. I have no reason now after all these years to do it. I wasn't proud of what I did. I mean, I did a job. I'm not proud of what I did then. I really, I really am not. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm somewhat embarrassed at times about...
4: But what maybe I you're proud day. of what you're doing now.
5: Well, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm I, truthful I, now. I'm for it witness. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm open now.
4: So Doty
1: says he should be believed now because he's no longer working for the Air Force. He no longer is doing the job he had then, allowing him to be open and truthful and because if he wanted to disinform, he would simply try to get us to believe that there hasn't been any alien contact. I don't buy either of these reasons. Regarding the first, just because you're no longer publicly employed by the Air Force Office of Special Investigations doesn't mean you aren't doing their bidding or that of some other intelligence organization. Intelligence agents can stay on retainer even after their official employment ends, or they can be hired by other intelligence agencies like the NSA or the DIA or the CIA, and this fact isn't publicly announced. So Doty could well be doing the bidding of an intelligence agency.
0: What about the claim that if Doty wanted to disinform Art, he would be trying to convince him there was no alien contact? The basis of this claim is that since
1: the Binowitz affair, the Air Force has come out and said that the Roswell incident, which we discussed in episode 49, did not involve a UFO. Fine. In the 1990s, the Air Force said that, that what really crashed was a secret balloon project to detect Soviet nuclear tests, and we didn't want them to know we were monitoring the tests, which is why they wanted to keep the nature of the crash secret. But. Does the 1990s statement really represent a change in Air Force policy on UFOs? No. Back in the early 1980s, the Air Force's position was dismissive of UFOs. That was the justification for closing Project Blue Book in 1970. We looked into this. We didn't find anything significant. We didn't find anything threatening to our national defense. And if there is anything to this alien business, we have no proof. And that's essentially the Air Force's attitude today, with the added detail that what crashed in Roswell was a Cold War spying project. So during the Paul Benowitz affair, the Air Force's public attitude was that we have no proof of alien contact. Yet their disinformation agents like Richard Doty were telling the UFO community that we do have such proof. Why then can't the same thing be happening now? The Air Force is still saying we don't have proof of aliens, while disinformation agents like Richard Doty, working either for them or another intelligence agency, are saying we do have proof. There has been no change, and we have no reason
0: to trust what Doty is saying now. If Doty's current claims were true, why would the Air Force let him keep making them? Art also asked Doty this question.
1: After which, Doty and Bishop
4: weigh in. I still don't understand uh, how they could have shown you Roswell and the true history of ufology and what the government knew and had you sign all this, and even today that you could be sitting here telling us.
5: Well, I was. Tr- I'm tr- I tried to explain that to you. Well, you did. The government, the government is saying now that doesn't exist. That that is baloney. Even though I signed something, so what are they going to come back and try to prosecute me for, tell, for telling for something thing? that they're saying is baloney? Make them deny it. It's the whole trick. Exactly. So they they're not going to do that.
1: But I think here Doty has an actual point. Since the government's current story is that they aren't in contact with aliens, it would be hard for them to prosecute Doty for saying that they are. They wouldn't want to prosecute him for that because it would attract too much attention and convince people they are in contact. However the government could strike at him in some other way. They could prosecute him for something else. They could frame him for a crime. They could give him a debilitating illness or even kill him in a way that looks like an accident or a home invasion where the perp got away. Any number of things. What that tells us is one of two things is the case. Either the Air Force and other intelligence agencies don't care what Richard Doty is doing now and don't view him as a serious threat or that he's actually doing their bidding. In both cases, we don't have a reason to believe what he says. And as multiple people who have interviewed Doty over time have said, his stories keep changing. He hasn't been telling a single consistent story since the Benowitz affair ended and the details of what he does say Keep changing. To me, that says, don't trust anything Richard Doty says.
0: Are you saying that aliens don't exist, that they've never visited Earth, that we don't have contact with them, or that we don't have alien tech? No, those are much broader claims, and
1: we need to look at the evidence from many more sources to evaluate them. I think intelligent aliens almost certainly exist somewhere in this big universe, and I'm open to the idea that they visited Earth, but What I am saying is don't trust anything Richard Doty says and be aware that there has been a really big disinformation campaign on this topic.
0: Okay, so what can we say about what happened to Paul Benowitz from the faith perspective? What can we say about Richard Doty's personal culpability? Richard Doty has expressed regret
1: for what he did to Paul. We heard one clip earlier in the show where he said that. And he also says it here, although a little bit more defensively, since Art Bell has really been putting him on the spot.
5: Speaking today in 2005, I'm not not proud of what I did. I mean, I had a job to do and I did my job. I followed orders.
1: He also says that he didn't intend Paul to go off the deep end and that he meant this to be a short-term deception that wouldn't actually harm Paul. And when things started getting serious, he says he tried to warn Paul to back off the subject. Then, after Paul was hospitalized, he tried to confess to Paul
5: towards the end of this operation, I tried to convince Paul and now this wasn't me as a as a OSI agent this was me as a person because I was concerned about Paul's health. Yes, I was trying to convince paul and 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 I went through his son to do this is that hey, everything we told you before, Paul, isn't true. And, and and I explained to him why we were doing it. But he never believed me. He said, no, you, I can't believe you, Rick, because...
4: Well, uh, right. Lie to me once and lie to me twice, right. you know, that kind of thing.
5: Yes.
4: Right? So I can see why that, uh, I, you know, he would just think you were in official denial. You know, emergency mode, we've got to deny all this.
5: Yeah.
1: Doty even says that he went against orders in his effort to undeceive Paul.
5: You know, it upset me what happened to Paul. I mean, I went and t- talked to Paul about it, trying to convince him against my, my commander's orders. He's telling me, hey, he doesn't have a clearance. You can't go tell him it's, it didn't happen. But he did anyway.
1: But his efforts were unsuccessful.
5: I visited Paul, and well, right up until, uh, I think, probably eight months before his death. I became friends with him, um, took him to dinner, dinner. Um, uh, and, and, and he, uh, he never I tried to talk to him I tried to talk him away from that subject and he, he, he was con- totally convinced
1: from Bill Moore's perspective Richard Doty wasn't the real problem here in his 1989 talk he told the MUFON audience
7: Rick is not the man you're after it's the person in the control position that's important here in my opinion he was simply a pawn in a much larger game just as I was.
1: And I think that's right. I can't judge Richard Doty's heart or anybody else's. I'm glad that he has expressed regret over what he did, and I hope he's effectually repented. But he was only a small part of this. The people ultimately responsible were those in charge of the overall disinformation campaign.
0: I know we can't judge their hearts either, but what can we say about the morality of the overall campaign?
1: As we say in many episodes that involve espionage, it's going to depend on your overall theory of lying. If you think that lying is never permissible, then obviously disinformation campaigns are immoral. However, if you think there are circumstances where lying can be warranted, like tactical deceptions to save lives, especially in wartime, you know, like telling the Nazis you don't have any Jews in your attic, then the situation's more complex. This was during the Cold War, and lives potentially millions of lives, were on the line if things went badly with the Russians and we got into a nuclear war. Many people would look at that and say, most definitely, our intelligence agencies are warranted in telling some lies to the Russians and even to the American people as a way of keeping the Russians in the dark.
0: Then the question would be, was this one of those cases? What do you say? It depends on what the overall motive
1: was. If the story that they would have us believe is true, that they were just trying to keep Paul from realizing that he had stumbled onto some classified projects, then lying would not be justified. Paul was a World War II vet and a patriotic American. He had offered to back off if what he had discovered was just some classified tech, and he certainly would have cooperated and kept it all secret if they had just admitted that. There was no need to lie to him. On the other hand, if all of this was part of a much larger, intentional disinformation campaign, the situation would be more complex. On the one hand, we need to keep the Soviets from discovering our secrets. But was a widespread disinformation campaign against the UFO community really the way to do that? I don't know all the secrets or the intelligence methods the Soviets would use to try to get at them, so I can't ultimately say but I can say that the whole thing leaves me absolutely queasy. The government should not be lying to a large number of American citizens without a very, very good reason. And it is not obvious to me why such a disinformation campaign would be necessary in this case.
0: How common is this kind of campaign? Do you think similar operations are happening right now? Here's what Richard Doty told Art Bell. How Universal,
4: you think, this kind of tactic is?
5: I know during the uh, 60s and 70s and uh, into the 80s, it was widespread. It was a, it was a primary tactic used by uh, U.S. intelligence uh, for a number of things. Not just, not just, we're not just talking about UFOs or aliens. But we're talking about a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. You can use disinformation to disinform anyone about anything if you, if you play your cards right.
4: And such things are certainly still going on. Is there any doubt in your mind that our government is still doing exactly that? There's some somebody doing Richard Doty's past job in today's armed services. Oh,
5: I'm, 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 I'm positive somebody's doing it. It, it. It's such a great method of... Of dis uh, of of laying people astray.
1: So disinformation is a great method of leading people astray, and there's certainly someone working for the government who is doing that for us right now today. Maybe Richard Doty.
0: So Jimmy, what's your bottom line on the Paul Benowitz and Project Beta affair?
1: Paul Benowitz was a tragic figure. He was a brilliant man with a great deal of scientific knowledge. He was also psychologically fragile, and he ended up being driven over the brink by the lies he was told. The Air Force and Richard Doty presumably did not foresee what would happen to him. Paul may or may not have been entrapped by the Air Force and the intelligence community, but they did tell multiple lies to him and others, and the necessity of these is unclear at best and absent at worst. None of the UFO lore that came out of the Paul Benowitz affair should be regarded as reliable. In fact, many parts of UFO lore should be treated with great suspicion, as Paul was only one element in a broader disinformation campaign, as Bill Moore revealed. And you should never trust anything Richard Doty says.
0: So, Jimmy, what do we have for further resources for the listener?
1: We'll have a link to the documentary, Mirage Men, also Mark Pilkington's book, Mirage Men, which covers some different ground than the documentary does, so there's added value there. Greg Bishop's book, Project Beta, Gabe Valdez's, Gabe Valdez Jr.'s book on Dulce Base, an open letter from Alejandro Rojas, who is one of the people who has accused Doty of just being a rogue agent who didn't have orders. And so he explores that idea in this open letter. Also, the uh, link to the original Coast to Coast AM interview with Greg Bishop and Richard Doty, so you can hear the whole thing if you're a Coast subscriber. An article on Paul Benowitz, an article on Dulce Base, one on Kirtland Air Force Base, the Albuquerque Historical Society's article on Kirtland Air Force Base, an article on the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, or APRO, one on the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, one on the National Security Agency, a copy of Richard Doty's military records, and an article on what limited
0: hangouts are. Excellent. This has been a great two episodes on this subject, and I thank you very much for that. So let's move on to our mysterious feedback. And as I said before, we're going to be uh, receiving feedback on our recent episode on The Mark of the Beast. The first feedback comes from Midwest Nagifa on YouTube, who writes, great episode, but the Pope didn't end up getting discussed.
1: Yeah, that's I, 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 that's true. If I had thought about it, I would have included a segment in the show where we discuss the claim that one of the Pope's alleged titles, Vicarius Philly Day, or Vicar of the Son of God, adds up to 666. There's a bunch of problems with that. Among other things, that's not one of the Pope's official titles. And if you get to pick your own phrase and add it up, you can make anybody the beast. Also, that view is not taken seriously by any biblical scholars. The rest of the data about the beast does not fit the Pope. And so this is a, a an idea that's out there in some fundamentalist and circles, but it's not really taken seriously by biblical scholars. And so it wasn't really on my brain but I'm I'm sure we'll cover it in the future in an episode devoted to the papal antichrist theory.
0: Okay. Father Horton sent an email. He said, I agree that the most likely conclusion is that it's Gematria and that the most likely candidate is Nero, but I don't think that either one is an open and shut case. It's not certain that the number is the number of a man, as is often translated. The word being translated is anthropo, which shows up in a very similar usage in Revelations 21.17, definitely not meaning of a man, in the sense of a singular individual. Another puzzling issue is that, although St. Irenaeus is aware of the 616 reading, he doesn't think that it points toward Nero. He has lots of ideas, some more inventive than others, but not Nero. I would think that were Nero the obviously right answer that everyone knew in the late first century— it is unlikely that Irenaeus would be unaware of it as he is. He also looks for a future fulfillment of the prophecy without referring to the idea that it has already been fulfilled. A good episode at any rate, and thank you for working to calm the fears of people who are upset by incautious rumor mongers.
1: So Father Horton has a number of good things to say here, and I actually had to condense his email a little bit, but I tried to retain the essential points. He's correct that the word anthropo, which is the genitive form of the noun anthropos, meaning man or human. And because it's the genitive form, because of the way the Greek works, it can be translated either of man or of a man. That's a decision that the translators have to make. And the thing that, that you want to look to to answer that is the context. So when Anthropoo shows up in Revelation 21, 17, John has been measuring the heavenly city, and he's using the measure anthropoo, the measure of man or human measurement to do it. It wouldn't make sense to say, I've been measuring the city with a big rod that is according to the measure of a man. Meaning some specific guy. It, it's clearly in that case the context points you to man as a general term. But I think the context is different in Revelation 13, where we read about the number of the beast being a number of a of man or of a man. Because there we're told we can we need to import everything we know about the beast, which strongly links it to the Roman Empire and the line of Roman emperors specifically. The seven heads represent Seven kings or emperors. And when we then find that one of those emperors has a name that adds up to 666, and he persecuted Christians, and he fulfills all the other things about the beast, I think that context helps us, helps serve as confirmation that, yeah, we've got the right interpretation here. Now, I I agree, St. Irenaeus of Lyon, who was writing about 120 years later by my reckoning, He's writing around the year 189 AD. He did not link it to Nero, and he had various other theories. But I don't think that it was obvious to everyone in the first century that Nero was the answer. John specifically says it takes wisdom to calculate this. So John expects some people to get it, but not everyone to get it. And I think some people did get it, which is why we have the number 616, but I think not everybody got it because that's why we don't have everybody in the second and third and fourth century saying, oh, yeah, that was Nero or that was linked to Nero. So I think the knowledge of who it was was fairly limited and died out fairly quickly. And I think one of the reasons it died out is because of the hermeneutic that Irenaeus and others tended to apply to Revelation. I think they took an overly literal hermeneutic, and so they expected things to be fulfilled in a more spectacular way than they actually were in the first century. And so that left them expecting these events to just have fulfillments in the future. And as part of the overly literal hermeneutic, Irenaeus and others think that, like, the Revelation, that, uh, Revelation 20's millennium is going to be a physical earthly reign of Christ for a thousand years and stuff. So I think these guys had an overly literal interpretation. So they didn't notice the fulfillments that actually did occur, and they kept it in the future. And that's why they didn't associate the beast with Nero. And that's why the knowledge of that fulfillment became eclipsed.
0: Charlie Kay writes on YouTube, The Boss Metal Zone guitar pedal is known by guitar players to be one of the worst sounding pedals ever made, which means the schematic was probably more of an inside joke to guitar players than anything. When I found out this was the case, I thought it was hilarious. So this
1: refers to a claim that we covered in the Mark of the Beast episode, where some people had put up a schematic on the web and claimed that it was a schematic for a Mark of the Beast chip that you would get with the COVID vaccine, when actually it was a schematic for this guitar pedal. And I, not being a guitar player myself, much less a rock guitar, electric guitar player, I had no idea that this was regarded as one of the worst. And that only adds to the irony of the situation. So thank you, Charlie, for sharing.
0: It's like the Jar Jar Binks of guitar pedals. <laughs> it yeah, I guess like. so. <laughs> uh, Sherry Not Shirley on YouTube writes, so very helpful. Glad I found this video relieved. And thank you, Sherry, not Shirley.
1: That's why I did the episode. That's why we got it into the schedule really quick because we knew that people were worried about this and we wanted to provide relief.
0: Flying Car 100 on YouTube wrote they actually don't even allow for social security numbers to start with 666.
1: I'm not surprised. I haven't verified that for myself, but I can easily see why when they set up Social Security, they wouldn't want any numbers starting with 666 because it would only confirm in people's minds that it was somehow connected to the beast.
0: I Kung Fu You2 on YouTube wrote I got the first of two COVID 19 vaccine shots and 665 appeared on my forehead. I'm nervous about getting the second dose. <laughs> I would be too if that happened to me. <laughs> Crystal M on Facebook wrote, thank you. I am a Catholic convert from a very end times focused Protestant background. I know we're not supposed to be afraid and to trust in God, but I'm human and this stuff freaks me out. This episode made so much sense and I feel a lot more calm about it. I even shared it with others like me. Thank you so much. And
1: thank you, Crystal. I'm very glad that the episode was helpful to you and that it helped, you know, calm some concerns. And thank you for sharing it with others.
0: And thank you, everyone, for your feedback. We really appreciate it. So, Jimmy, what mysterious headlines do we have this week? Well, we've
1: been talking about space and aliens and life in space. So I thought I'd give us a space theme today. You know, years ago, we've, we've been sending probes to Mars for a long time. Now, when we sent the Viking probes in the 70s, one of the experiments we ran said there was life on Mars. And they then quickly tried to debunk that. But actually, the guy who ran the debunking has subsequently been debunked. And so this is still an open question. Is there life on Mars? And I think the odds are actually good that there there is, but we'll have to see. Now, in subsequent decades, they kept sending probes to Mars to look for conditions that might harbor life. And it was so frustrating for people. I remember, for example, George Knapp, one of the weekend hosts on Coast to Coast, complaining about, why are you searching for life-supporting conditions? Just send a probe to test for life. Well, they're finally doing that. And so as of a few days ago, before, the, before this episode releases, the Perseverance rover will have arrived at Mars and either landed successfully or failed spectacularly, but hopefully it landed successfully because its purpose is to search for life in the soil of Mars and return samples to Earth where they can be studied by scientists under a microscope and we can look and see are there really microbes here. So we'll have a link to the to NASA's official page about that. Also, speaking of searching for living or formerly living things off of Earth, there may be dinosaur bones on the moon because when the big asteroid or asteroids hit Earth 60 million years ago, there was so much ejecta that some of it would have ended up on the moon and there could be dinosaur bones and frozen dinosaur meet up there. We'll have to find out once we get back to the moon in a few years, maybe we'll run across some uh, interesting flash frozen dinosaur stuff. (laughs) And if life can go up from Earth, life can come down to Earth. There is a report of a meteor in Peru that has made people sick. So So there's this weird meteor sickness that's happened down in Peru. It may, it hypothetically could be due to a number of things. One of them is there could be a virus or a other pathogen on the meteor, other microorganism on the meteor. It's also possible that it could be due to something else. It could be hysteria, although I think the evidence may point against that. But it also could be things like when the meteor smacked into the ground, it made a big dent and that could have gotten some arsenic into the water supply or something. So there are some different options, but we'll have a link to the article and you can read all about it.
0: Excellent. Those are some good headlines. So that about does it for us. We want to hear from you, your feedback on what your your theories about Paul Benowitz and Project Beta and everything that happened with him. Uh, now that you've got the complete picture of the two episodes, what are your theories now? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, or send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, or send a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of MysteriousFeedback. So Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next episode, we'll be answering our patrons questions. So we'll be talking about subjects
1: like gravity illusions, the Winchester mansion, Marian apparitions outside the Catholic church, precognitive dreams, evangelizing extraterrestrials, and how I find accurate information in today's world.
0: Excellent. So folks, remember to like this episode when you find it on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on Facebook and retweet it on Twitter and share it around. Let other people know about the podcast. You do a great job at doing that. And we really do appreciate when that happens. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to those mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken. thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bethanelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. And you should
1: never trust anything Richard Doty says.